Welcome to the Gentleman Ultra podcast, where we continue our special series of three World Cup questions, where we ask the same three questions to some of our friends in the world of Calcio. Our very spe- special guest today is the bloke who was writing about Italian football even before it was cool, uh, author of two fantastic books, 20 Great Italian Games, Volume 1 and 2, and co- co-host of the very awesome Rigori podcast, the third most popular Giancarlo on Google. Giancarlo Ronaldo, welcome. Thanks for joining me. Oh, I'm glad to be. I'm glad to be in third place. As a as an honor, <laughs> as an honor indeed. I'll be working and moving my way up that up that list if I possibly can. Probably after appearing on here, I imagine I'll uh, move <laughs> my, my SEO. We I'll just need. Up a uh, we need uh, Giancarlo Esposito to retire from acting oh, and Giancarlo yeah, Stanton yeah. just to call it quits from the Major oh, League Baseball. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, he's a cheat because he called himself Mike for a long yeah, time. Yeah, that's right. Well, didn't he? So go back to being Mike and I can move yeah. up to number two. <laughs> All right. We'll get stuck into the questions. So, uh, and apologies for my dusty voice. I'm coming to you live with two hours sleep after Australia versus Denmark. Somehow pulled it off, but we did it. Uh, what's your favourite moment from your World Cup past? But well, I, I thought about this for a while, but it, it, in, in honesty, there was one thing came to me straight away, and I went through sort of all my World Cup memories, and I kept coming back to the same the same thing. I, I, when I was twelve years old, um, I was in Italy. Um, if you can picture the scene, as in Italy to this day, slightly different then there would be a gathering in a bar to watch Italy's World Cup games. It just so happened. I mean, I, as you can tell from the accent, I was not born and raised in Italy. I was born and raised in Scotland. Um, but we used to go every summer back to Barga, little village in Tuscany, um, where the family came from to see relatives, to visit friends. It was always more special when it was a World Cup year. And this, this is the first World Cup that I can remember being in Italy for was the 1982 World Cup and we 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 left Scotland after the um the what were effectively the quarterfinals the group stage so we were in Italy for the win over Poland and then for the final itself now we've got friends that have a bar in a little place called Fornaci di Barga which is near near to Barga um and the thing is I don't think the widescreen television had been invented then, or if it had been, it hadn't reached our corner of Tuscany, because from my memory, in this bar in Fornaci, on the top of, sort of one of these big units that's got all sort of chocolate eggs and stuff to sell to people, was a tiny portable television. And yet, without a word of a lie, there must have been, I don't know, 60, 70 people in this rows of seats for people to watch the World Cup final on this. So I was there. 12 years old, with my dad, my uncle, other relatives, friends, watching this game. Now, we, when we left Scotland, the, the pundits, the, the UK media was very down on Italy, although they had, you know, beaten Brazil, beaten Argentina, kind of turned them around. But I could still remember um, after the group game with Poland, somebody saying, oh, well, you know, we'll see nothing of these two teams um, in the World Cup, rest easy, you know, they won't be going very far. And of course, as it turned out, they met in the semi-final and Italy went on to the final. But the moment I was wanting to take you to was, at, I think it was about, Italy were 3-0 up um, and 
my dad is the most superstitious man in the world. He's also the most cautious and fearful man in the world. So all these mad Italians were celebrating, hey, what, Siamo Campioni del Mondo. And my dad was saying, calm down, calm, you know, don't, even at 3 0 up with 10 minutes to go, he was not willing to accept that the World Cup was won. If you remember West Germany scored, Paul Breitner scored to make it 3-1. That was proof to my dad that he was right. You know, watch out, boys, as comeback as possible. So back to foot. Yeah. So when the when the final whistle blew, they got they had a giant bottle of spumante, I presume, that they were going to celebrate with. And they cracked this open and they sprayed it all over the place. And then because my dad had been so nervous, they turned it upside down and put it down the back of his shirt. So his shirt was soaked <laughs> through with spumante. And anyway, we celebrated. We went, we went back inside, out in the streets, cars, horns blaring, all noise up the main street of Fornaci. We went back inside because we wanted to see Dino's off get the trophy and he lifted it in there. And I can still remember, I mean, I get emotional even talking about it now. I don't know how many, 40 years on, I can feel tears forming because it was such a thing. We'd left. We, Italy had no chance. They were, you know, they were defensive. They were rubbish. I grew up in an era where Italian football was really looked down on in the UK because it was seen Catenaccio still carried that stigma and it was seen as very negative defensive football. So we went back inside to watch the trophy race. was so excited and then went outside and I can remember saying to him, you know, we showed them dad, we showed them, didn't we? And and my uncle had changed his, his plans. He was meant to leave two or three days earlier, but he changed his plans to stay on. So he was driving after that through the night to get to, a cross-channel ferry to get back to to get back to Scotland to get back to the UK, and as we were there, you could hear that somebody took the bells out of the church in Barga and started running down the hillsides, clanging these bells. And as I say, cars were going by, red, white, and green flags out the top of them. So I, I don't think you know. I don't think even if I live to be a hundred and two, I don't think I'll top that as a World Cup moment. It meant so much because I was already a big defender of Italian football, a big fan of the Azzurri. And this was just, this was the crowning moment. I was 12 years old, which I always think is like a gateway from sort of youth to adulthood as well. And uh, the, the, the next year, my nonno passed away. So it was the, the last World Cup that I got to watch with him. He wasn't in Italy, he was still in Scotland, but I'd watched previous games with him as well. So it was just... It was such a perfect moment that, as I say, I don't think they'll ever be, you know, I've seen Italy win another World Cup and it was that was brilliant too in a different way. But just the, the moment that I had being in Italy, being with my dad, being with friends, and as I say, in Italy being so vilified at the start of the tournament really, as I think somebody said it would be better if the World Cup went to hell than it went to Italy was one of the, was one of the quotes that... That, that my dad remembered and as I say we were just outside this little bar arms round one another and crying like babies really Italy winning the World Cup and remember that had been you know that was the first in our lifetime that was that was the first one for another was it 44 years or something so to me that was the that was the greatest moment and I, I doubt I'll ever top that yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Yeah. Had you watched 70? Can you remember watching much of 78 with your nonno or with your dad? 
I, I don't remember 78 so much because those games were quite late at night and I was only eight years old, so I wasn't allowed to be a naughty boy and stay up for much of the games. I remember some of the I remember some of the aftermath from them. I remember the, the banter at school. Then I can remember 80 definitely was European nations in Italy. Um, got very vivid memories of that. My my uncles um going bananas when uh, you may remember Italy beat England in that and uh, 1-0 Marco Tardelli scored the goal and for Scottish Italians that's like the top result beating England you can't you can't top that really you know you've got for every for every possible reason so you know I've got very vivid memory of that and then at at 82 I can remember being around uh, I think it was possibly the Argentina game and my 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 non if I could it have been no I didn't watch Brazil but I watched a game and he was out round the garden waving his Italy <laughs> waving his Italy scarf round the round, round the garden or whatever the flag round the round the garden and my dad was too nervous to watch yeah um, to watch the Brazil game so the, as I say then that is you know I've got a lot of good memories of of that one and then ever since I mean you know better than me that these are gathering moments and that's what's really so hard about this World Cup and the last World Cup for Italians I mean you you've got another horse to to ride in this race my Scotland's not there either so you know I'm 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 all out for yeah. for Qatar it doesn't it doesn't mean it doesn't mean anything to me you know so that, that, that's hard to take but you know those things are such they're such great gathering points as well you know it's an excuse to get all the salami, mortadella, prosciutto, whatever you can find, a nice bottle of red, a coffee. I mean, I know for you, it's often at breakfast time, so or the middle of the <laughs> it's night. Never it's never stopped like, anyone before. So. No, that's good. I'm glad to know that spirit is global. Uh, I think that spirit's global. And I think I've told you this story before. I've certainly told it to other people that the, the, the last time that Italy, when they got knocked out of the last World Cup that they were in, um, my daughter said to me, Oh, Dad, What's going to happen to my cold meats now? <laughs> she said because this was every game I was putting on a big platter. She was loving it. I mean, she's vegetarian now, so she wouldn't love it now, but she loved it then. Yeah. Um, and we put on this big spread of bread, cheese, cold meats, whatever, yeah. coffee. You know, and it was just great. So it's, you know, the socialising is so much part of a of a major tournament for Italians that it's it's a crying shame to miss out now. Yeah, it, it's true, and it's true here. Like you said, you know, like. Even with kickoffs at you know two a.m. and four a.m., it just resulted in you know a big breakfast, you know, or, or people hanging around for <clears throat> excuse me, like yeah, breakfast and coffee and perhaps a shot of whiskey or whatever else, scotch in, in the coffee. Who knows? But yeah, it's it, that's like that's half the fun, you know, people turning up at all hours and people rocking up to your house and everyone trying to be quiet, and then the inevitable goal celebration results in. <laughs> Waking up half of the neighbourhood. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Yeah. Was the uh, was your did you visit your nonno? Was he the first person you went to visit when you came back from Italy? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, we were delighted. And then a, another little story, which was quite funny, because my dad, when Italy got drawn in the the group of death uh, with Argentina and Brazil, he put a bet on. Italy were forty to one to win the World Cup, so he put five pound bet on that so he came back he collected 200 pounds and he'd also got a fake um world cup trophy to take in because my dad was a teacher at that time in the school where i was a pupil 
Um, and again, the same thing. All the boys have been saying, oh, Italy's rubbish, Mr. Rinaldi. Italy do nothing. So the first day back at school at Assembly, he came in with the World Cup trophy <laughs> and paraded it, paraded it through the through the school. So it was it was it was fantastic. As I say, these are these are memories that you that you can't beat. Yeah, that's magic. That is awesome. Absolutely awesome. Yeah, very cool. Uh, so, what's been your your favourite game from your World Cup life? Well, I, I, I mean, I, I'll be a bit of a, a broken record, but the, I mean, Italy Brazil at that at that World Cup was just again it. It felt like a, a, I mean, maybe maybe with hindsight, maybe I'm adding more significance to it. But I think still, even from a Brazilian point of view, it's seen as a watershed game in the history of the World Cup because I think it was Brazil were the the free flowing samba side or whatever. Although you know they they could defend too. Let's not be too, but you know they they, they were sort of always you know we'll score a goal more than you do, and they'd come through. I mean, you couldn't have had more contrasting group stages, if you like. You know, Italy had mm. plodded through with nil, 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 one, one, yeah. or whatever. You know, it wasn't exactly wasn't exactly breathtaking. And then Brazil were scoring goals for fun from from forty eight yards or whatever. And you know, and so it was it was cast here in the UK as as good versus evil. It was the true pantomime villain was was Italy really, and it was set up perfectly as well because. Brazil only needed a draw to get through. Both sides had beaten Argentina, but Brazil had the goal difference advantage. And so, you know, nobody had any belief that Italy could stop this amazing team of footballers. And yet, from somewhere, Paolo Rossi found magic in his in his head and his boots and scored those goals. And, and yet, every time you thought the job was done, you got drawn back in, you know, Rossi scored, Socrates equalised, and then Rossi scored again. And then it took a bit longer that time. And you could see, I think, when Falcao scored to make it 2-2, there was a mix of joy and relief on his face. And, and at that point, if it had been Italy in that position, they would have brought on three defenders, <laughs> taken off. You know, they would have made tactical just But Brazil, I think, thought that, you know, they could go on and win the game, you know, and, and I salute them, I admire in some ways that approach, but they hadn't counted on Paolo Rossi again, um, popping up with another goal. Then, you know, as a Fiorentina fan, Antonioni scored a perfectly good fourth goal that was disallowed. So to me, that game was 4-2 mm. um, and that was Italy through. It was just the, the, the ding-dong nature. I didn't see... Uh, I'm not old enough to remember the 4-3 uh, was only, um, what would that be, six months old, the 4-3 the semi-final with West Germany, the game of the century. Of the century. But my, my dad and my uncles sat through that and said, you know, was, that was just unbelievable because Italy had done what Italy always did, scored early, defended long and hard and then lost a goal in the final minutes to take it to extra time and then just boom, boom, back and forward, these, you know, 4-3 it finished. That must have been something. But in my lifetime, as I say, and just, again, the teams that were involved the, the, growing up in the 70s, Italy were much maligned as, as a team, as were the club sides. They were seen as very defensive, very negative, all the dark arts. And then, you know, my uncle make me laugh because when Brazil came on, suddenly the samba drums would start playing and everything was beautiful and everything was light. And 
I can remember many years later, there was a competition on the BBC to nominate your best Brazil goals ever. And he was he was in fury. He said, why are they doing this for Brazil? Why? So he got mo- he worked himself up to it until he picked up the phone and he phoned in. And he said, hello, is this... I want to nominate the three best goals from Brazil games at the World Cup. He said, Paulo Rossi's first goal in 1982, Paulo Rossi's <laughs> second goal in 1982, and Paulo Rossi's third goal in 1982, and hung up the phone. So, you know, that it shows you the level of lunacy you were, you were dealing with. So, but that that made that game so amazingly special. And it was, as I say, I think it was a watershed game for both countries, because I've read now since then that, you know, in Brazilian football, it's seen as the day that football died and, you know, they learned to defend and a bit of a simplification, I think. But nonetheless, you do see certainly Brazil teams now, they've got some of the best defenders in the world and, you know, they are rugged and uncompromising and, you know, they yep. they don't they don't play with quite the abandon that, that previous Brazilian teams did. And in the same way, I think for Italy, it was a watershed in that it kind of started to crack the perception that, it was all Catenaccio, it was all defence. Yes, we could defend, but we also had, you know, Bruno Conte, we also had Antonioni, we also had Paolo Rossi, you know, we tried to score goals. And, you know, you think of some of the games in that tournament, the final, Shiria was up playing in the attack alongside, you know, the, the, the famous the famous goal that Tardelli scored, I think it went to Shiria, it came back, went, you know, it came back, it was a little bit but, you know, they were involved in the attacking play as well, all these the supposedly defensive nation was able to play attacking football. So, you know, I think it was a it was a big game historically, and it was it was a great game. You know, as I say, for for me, I think it showed that Italy were were back because again, you think historically, it had been as I say, you know, a long time since Italy had troubled the scorers at a World Cup, and to suddenly to be back and to win it when you were really unfancied. And when you were really, and that game was the the key moment because up until that point, I don't think anybody believed that they could win the World Cup. After that, to me, in my head, it seemed like I don't say a formality, but it just felt so much that the main momentum was with them. How could how could Poland and West Germany cope with that if Brazil couldn't? That was how it felt. So that again, there've been a lot of great games um, down the years, but that still stands out as as the greatest yeah. ever. Yeah, and it's amazing. Like you said, they scored two goals against Argentina, three against Brazil, two against Poland, and then three in the final against West Germany. That's pretty good for a, a defensive, you know, a side with a defensive reputation, but yeah. Exactly, exactly. Better, yeah, like in that 3-2 game, I, I say this all the time, but if you ever get anybody, you know, if an alien arrives on planet Earth and they want to know what football is, like that's the game. Show them that game, you know, three, two, and Def- away you definitely, go. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. And of course, you're a uh, a great admirer of uh, Giancarlo Antonioni. Yes. Absolutely. Like what made him What made him so special? For those that didn't get to see him. Oh, just I mean, his his balance is. I mean, I think he's a type of player that we don't have anymore in football so you really need to go back there was the classic to me if you wanted to sort of google playmaker number 10 playmaker he would in my head he would come up number one because he just had that poise balance they caught when he burst through they called them the boy who plays looking at the stars and i think that that summed them up really that you know he had always had his head up he was always looking at and 
it wasn't. I mean, I, I saw him again. The mind plays tricks because you're you're young. But the Fiorentina did pre-season in Barga, where my family's from, for a few seasons, and they were there. I think the season after they won the World Cup, um, they were there and they played like a local select team on a dusty old bobbly old pitch in Barga, the, the Stadio Johnny Moscardini, named after the only Scottish-born player to play for Italy, mm-hmm. um, who was a local lad. Um, but anyway, they played on this pitch, a boiling hot day, sun's beating down, we're sort of grabbing onto the fence outside. And I mean, I'll tell you, there were, there were 21 people playing one game and one person playing something else from another planet because you could throw the ball at them as I say, on a pitch that was, you know, if your back garden was in that state, you'd be you'd be embarrassed, and it, it was bouncing all over the place. He just killed it dead. There wasn't there wasn't a moment's thought that you know how do I control this? Will I control this? He controlled it. That was it. So the thought was already how will I pass it? Where will I send this ball? You know, he was one step ahead because the control was so perfect. And then he seemed to glide across the pitch as well. He wasn't the fastest, but he just moved so elegantly. He had the long hair, which obviously now I envy even more than I did then. And and join the club. You know, join the club. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you know, just everything about him. I was I was transfixed from from day one. But as I say, you know, just a great, great player. And I can't really, you know, I I don't think there's anybody now that even comes close to playing like him. Mean, that's not to say that, you know, there aren't players that are even better than him now. Of course there are, but just the, that style of play, that sort of playmaking role um, just doesn't exist anymore. And now he would be much, you know, he'd be physically bigger, stronger. He'd probably have been in the gym, you know, for, for a thousand sessions to build him up or whatever. But it was something, his fragile grace or whatever. He missed that World Cup final in 82 because he got injured in the semi-final. There was always something slightly flawed or something slightly weak about him. So that was, you know, just a brilliant, brilliant player. And he was Giancarlo, you know, so you know, that, <laughs> that, that, just, that just clinched the deal, really. Is he still, to, the, to this day, your favourite Fiorentina player? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I did, obviously, Gabriel Batistuta, Rui Costa come close, but they they can't, they can't compare, I don't think. Just, you know, they call him Lunico Dieci, the only number 10 still in, in Florence. I don't think anybody can, can come up. For, for people who've seen him play, you know, I think, obviously, if you're of a younger generation than I, I mean, Batistuta, I saw him play too. Amazing, Rui Costa. The, the closest we got, I mean, you know, you think it's, it's nuts and Baggio as well. You think Fiorentina had those three number 10, you know, to have one number 10 like that in your in your club's career um, would be amazing. To have three is just, you know, you're spoiled, really, you're spoiled. But still, still Antonioni, 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 my top three Fiorentina <laughs> players of all time. Much to, like to your parrot. uncle's favourite yes, to, calls. <laughs> exactly, to parrot my uncle. Yeah, that's my that's yeah. my approach to that question. I'll have to have you on the uh, the podcast when we kick it kick it off again. We'll, we'll go deep into Fiorentina and <laughs> the, the battle of number 10s and number 9s. Yeah, it's... Uh, it, well, even when I was there a few years back, um, and I'm hoping to go back next year, but I remember walking towards the ground and, you know, they've got all the stalls with all the jerseys and the T-shirts and, and you still see the Antonioni shirts up, you know, the yeah, current yeah, day no. shirts with the number 10. And and, yeah, and for someone absolutely. as an outsider, like, to be perfectly honest, the first time I'd heard about him, read about him was through the 82 sort of World Cup and stories. 
And then I read some of the the pieces that you had put together and I was like, wow, Giancarlo really likes this player. He must be very good. You know, and then you start watching stuff and you see it. And yeah, I just, I was like, wow, I wonder if there's anyone like him today, but I thought of like Rui Costa, if that was essentially because he played for Fiorentina, if that was the yeah, yeah. closest yeah, no, thing. Rui, Rui was, the, yeah, for Fiorentina, he was the closest thing, but it's the, the different movement, different, I mean, Rui was... Maybe more elegant on the on the yeah, ball, something different, really different era, different But exactly, exactly. Yeah. You, you yeah. know, you, you, you yeah. can't compare. That's right. Yep. So you may have prefaced this question with your last answer, but what's what's your favourite team from your World Cup journey? Well, I would. I would. The only thing I was going. I mean, yes, it's not a hard one to guess, but I thought I, I would say the nineteen seventy eight team was my favourite rather than the eighty two team, and the reason for that is Antonioni based because this was when this was the first World Cup I can sort of remember. I was at school in Scotland and you used to get we would discuss the games in class afterwards. Even if you know you didn't stay up, you'd see the results, you would watch the highlights. It was the first World Cup that kind of was in my consciousness. And it was also the first World Cup where I knew I wanted Italy to win. And so when they went out um, to Holland, that was it. I didn't. There were things called Dutch crisp bakes. I would not eat them for months after this World Cup. But what what hooked me on that team was, and uh, I mean, at various stages in Italy's history, they've had a block or a group from one particular team. But that '78 team had the Blocco Juve, and so I was coming to the national team for the first time, really. And this was it. It was. Nine Juventini and two others. Now, the other one was Mauro Berugi of Bologna. So, and no disrespect to Mauro, a very decent player, played plenty of times for Italy, but Antonioni was a different thing. So, and being, I think, a contrary sort of so and so, I thought, well, am I going to support these night? I mean, technically, if you want to go back, I think Rossi, Paolo Rossi, was registered as a Lanne Rossi Vicenza player, yes. but we all knew yep. he was a Ju- Juventino in waiting. So, you know, so effectively, you know, Zoff, um, Girea, Gentile, Cabrini, Tardelli, Causio, Betega, it, it was Juve. It was Juve, but how good? It was a smattering of, t- it was essentially like a Turin based Italian team because yeah, it was like I, six, five or six Torino players there as well, wasn't it? How, how good was Antonioni to be? the one non-Juventino <laughs> in that team, you know. So that was, that kind of piqued my interest already. And I, it's funny because I think if everywhere around the world, I think Italians, especially abroad, there are a lot of Juventus supporters. So even in my group, it wasn't that common to be a Fiorentina fan, mostly when we gathered. So there was always this club prejudice going on in the background as well, where, you know, Antonioni's not so good, you know, and, and everything was expected of Antonioni because he was the most creative player. So if he let the side down, it was, oh, quello della Fiorentina, you know. And as I say, it was the scapegoat because he was the only one. The rest of them were going back to Juve, whereas he was the only one. So, I mean, I think for for four of the four of those World Cup, three or four of those World Cup games, it was effectively nine Juve players plus Bellugi, and Antonioni. And Lucci played for Inter, did he, at one point as well? I yes, think. yes, I think so, yeah, I think so. Yeah. But at, at that time, he was at Bologna, Bologna, as I say. Yeah. And, you know, he was a good, good, hard-working player, but not not the kind of guy 
when you're eight years old that's going to make you fall in love with football. <laughs> whereas, whereas Antonioni definitely wasn't. As I say, I think it was just something that thought, you know, oh, well, it would be easy to support Juve's winning everything, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, maybe I could have done that. Maybe my life would have been a lot easier if I had yeah. done that. But instead, <laughs> that 78 team was the first one that really kind of I remember. I remember feeling so sad when, because they won all their group games. I mean, that, that's almost unheard of in Italian football history at that point. I mean, we did do it again, but, you know, at that point, they, they won, they beat Hungary, they beat France, they beat Argentina, the host nation. And wow. you're just thinking, this wow. is this is, a, this is amazing. And then it was only, they got through, I think, you know, with hindsight, maybe they started too well. <laughs> um, and, and and they kind of ground to a halt in the, and there was another little mini group and they couldn't get enough of that. And then, I remember them losing to Holland, losing to Brazil. And it was, these were the games where um, Dino's off couldn't get off the ground. It was like yeah. shots from, I don't know, 20, 30. Ari Han, I think, was one of them. I can't remember the other one. But, you know, these shots just went battering in passes off. So it was it was heartbreak in the end, really. But it was like the, the groundwork for, you know, the, there was a lot of forward planning. I think that mm. team, that, that failure in Argentina was the foundation for success in Spain four years later. And they did, you know, now now we're very short term. We don't, you know, we don't, you know, if it goes wrong, that's it. You're a disaster. You're out. And, you know, you, you can't think of somebody like Bearzot getting the time that he got really to to model a yeah. national team and to to create that success. But that was, you know, they, they, they really put in the groundwork there to see what worked, to see what didn't work, to find out you know, what the resilience was and, you know, and then to wait for Paolo Rossi when he was banned from the game to to have the faith in him who'd hardly kicked the ball in two years to then mm. take him to, to Spain in 82 was, was amazing. Again, that's another thing that I don't think would happen now. You'd be discarded and, and probably never never play again. But, you know, it was a long-term plan. But as I say, the biggest thing about 78 to me was that there was this one guy I thought, he must be something amazing. So that was it. And as I say, and, and then I picked that team and that was it. The rest yeah. is the rest is hist- a history of uh, suffering for about 40 odd, <laughs> odd years and, and it's more. Inc- but... Well, it's incredible because there's one Milan player, one Lazio player, one Roma player, uh, one Vicenza, one Inter-, Inter player, and one Bologna player. And the rest of the squad is Juventus and Torino. And yeah. Birzot, was a Torino coach, wasn't he? So you think yeah. he'd lean more towards? Do you think so? But then you know that was the the, the championship area. I was telling you something. You've yeah. won the right. title, yeah. however many times, and you know every two years or so that they won the the title back to back throughout the seventies. That was my my youth was was you know who's who's leading Serie. <laughs> Oh, be UV, you know, and and that was it, and then the same, and then they'd let you down in the European Cup. That was the that was the traditional <laughs> pattern because you know that was the sort of the 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 seventies and eighties were great times for English teams mm. in in Europe. So generally, you would find that UV would go in and and then UV would go out. Really, that was that was all it was. That was all there was to that. But yeah, no, and that was probably the, that might have been the last real block that the national team had, but they did used to do that. Fiorentina actually once provided, if you can believe it, a block for the national team when they won the Scudetto and, and then Inter as well. You know, there were mm. and the great the great Torino side obviously was mm. oh, but yes. I think I think they had 10. I think they had yeah. the maximum that ever yeah. 
that ever played for Italy was 10 out of 11 from the great Torino side. But nonetheless, that, that Italy team when I was when I was growing up was, you know, eight or nine Juventini Juve, plus, yep. plus a and, couple and of others. Yeah, it's interesting because Cabrini went to the World Cup with zero caps. Um, Scudella only had a handful as well. I think, from, I think he had from memory. Um, but Rossi went there with zero. And I think Cabrini come back with the best young player award. Yeah. And then you fast yeah, yeah. forward four years to 82 and it's, it's, there's about six or seven interplayers by that point. Yeah. Um, Scudella, Scudella is obviously more experienced as they, as they sort of all are. Yeah. Um, but there's, yeah, predominantly Juve and Inter across the yeah, squad. No, there's, uh, there's also three Fiorentina players. That's, uh, no, four Fiorentina players. That's heavy. <sighs> Heady days. You got Masato, yeah, yeah. Graziani. Uh, who oh, else? yeah, Chicho. Yeah, I saw, I saw him uh, and Antonioni and Vierco yeah. uh, was, was there too. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, they had a, had a strong, strong squad at the time. You know, the Fiorentina have have provided for the national team over the years. It was just at that time. It was you know it was you. But I think they learned from '78 not to start off too well. So they decided to start off really rubbish in 1982 so that they could get the wins. You know, because three wins nearly takes you, can win you the World Cup if yep. you do it at the knockouts or yep. get you to the final. You know, so they don't waste your wins at the group stage was the lesson of 1978. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, one of my my favourites, purely for his, oh, I guess even more so for his work after his career, I'm reading about him, but Gabriele Oriali. He had some oh, time yeah, yeah. at Fiorentina. What do you remember about him as a player? Oh, I mean, tough, tough guy, tough guy, and good hard worker. That was, you know, if you think, I mean, not quite a Gattuso, but of that, of that ilk. I mean, it was Oriali that the Liga Bue song is about una vita da mediano. I, I translate it for my son now. I say the, I mean, imagine writing a song called "The Life of a Central Defensive Midfielder." It's not. <laughs> It doesn't trip off the tongue, and yet, yeah. you know, if you ha- if you haven't heard it, listeners, you know, it's well worth a listen. It just tells the story, really, of, of the player that goes in and just gives all he has until he can't give any more. And then, you know, once you're done, you're done. That's it. Whoosh, out. You know, that's that's what you give. And that was what Oriali gave to that team, really. He was, yeah. you know, if you want, he was the the kind of the psych. He was the Gattuso to Pirlo, what? what he was to Antonioni. He was that kind of player. With I would I would credit him with a bit more skill than Gattuso, a bit less likely to maybe get sent off than Gattuso. But just that that kind of midfield enforcer and, and a team that had plenty of enforcers. Really, I mean, you know, the back in the day, a sort of Romeo Benetti of Juve was a real tough guy. You know, Oriali was a was a softer version of that. I would say, but <laughs> but a, a good a good good ball winner. You know, and and every team needs somebody like that 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 gets it, gives it. You know, and that that's their that's their job, and then can smother out. You know, the opposition's attacking mm. threat as well. You know, so that good good player as well. I mean, that whole as I say, that whole eighty two team was was amazing. Yeah, can you recall the eighty two team off the top of your head? Oh, Zoff and goals. Um, Shiria Gentile. Cabrini, um, it changed a bit because they had to move it around. I mean, Bergomi came in, and Bergomi, the the world's oldest eighteen-year-old, came in. <laughs> Bergomi, Oriali, Antonioni, um, Bruno Conti, Paolo Rossi, 
Graziani. I don't know if I missed someone out. Colovati. Colovati, yeah, of course. Pretty close, yeah. It's it's almost like a given. It's it's like a song, isn't it? Everyone can name the, you know, name the the starting eleven. Yeah, yeah, no, it is because it just that, that was I mean ingrained in your mind. Whereas now I would find it much harder to remember, probably. But I think just at that stage, if you like, when you're unencumbered by other distractions that life throws at you, you know, the the World Cup was everything when I was twelve years old. There was nothing else to worry yeah. about yeah. but the World Cup. Now there's so many other things, but at that stage of your life, it's just those. So you'll always, I think those teams will always be stuck in your mind yeah. much much more clearly than, you know, I probably struggled yeah. to name you the current Fiorentina <laughs> team as well as I remember the Chops and changes. Chops and changes so much, yeah. I always, I always just remember the poster being up in the garage. My dad had the team poster and just yeah. always as a kid looking up to it and just thinking, oh, wow, those they're like gods, you know. Like yeah, yeah. It's, it's so like I, a, a different level. Yeah, I had that in the house for a long, long time. And we actually got, I had Antonioni's autograph as well, because he, he, as I say, came to Barga for this pre-season. We got a, there was a ticket or something from somewhere that we got him to sign. So that was stuck on top of Antonioni ah. in that in that line. I think we had, well, obviously it wasn't the final lineup. It must have been, it must have been maybe the semi-final um, team that we had the picture of the poster on the wall and I had that yeah right through I think I took it from the when I was living with my mum and dad to when I moved into my first flat to when I moved into my <laughs> only now only now is it rolled up somewhere I need to un- I need to I need to unroll that and get yeah. it back in the living room here I've yeah. lived without it too long yeah I remember um Graziani, Francesco Graziani came out and he played in the, the old NSL at the National Soccer League oh, in Australia. Yeah, 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 yeah. He came and played like two games for Arpia. And it was like a it was it was the equivalent of like Del Piero coming to Sydney yeah, FC in yeah, the A League. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, just yeah. like, oh wow, he's real. He's he it's <laughs> a real person. Like he's not just yeah, on TV and some- from Amazing. It's yeah, amazing. Old games I've watched. This is yeah, yeah, yeah. I was only 10 at that stage, but yeah, mm-hmm. I, I remember that happening, but yeah, very cool. Well, it's been yeah, so great to chat and so awesome to share some of those those very cool memories. It's a it's a privilege. Thanks, thanks again. It's a pleasure. It's always it's a delight to to reminisce about these things, especially this year when Italy's not there. <laughs> all, this is how this is how I've occupied myself during the whole. Oh, oh yeah, all we've got is nostalgia. So it's lovely to it's lovely to wallow in it for a wee while. So thanks again, Giancarlo. And I, I forgot the all important question. Yeah. Just let everyone know where can people find you and all your work. Oh yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. We're just getting so excited, get so excited, get carried away about the self, the self publicity. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I'm always well. I'm always on Football Italia website. You can find me there, as you mentioned kindly. The Rigori podcast. I do that with my cousin, another mad Azzurri fan who has put on a set of blinkers for this month. He will not even speak of Qatar. He will not mention the World Cup. He does not believe it is taking place. Uh, my cousin Marco. Soon to be banned from Twitter too. Get it. Yeah, like, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going to be, going to be, yeah, he's going to be shot by the <laughs> Venezia. The, yeah. the Venezia FC official account will probably kill him off. So we do the Rigori podcast. If you want to search for that, if you've enjoyed hearing Calcio spoken about with a Scottish accent, you find me there. 
I'm still on Twitter, Jinkers, G-I-N-K-E-R-S, um, there for there to be insulted when Fiorentina lose, and um, and and various other places as well. And but you mentioned you mentioned the books that I've got; they're still available to order on on Amazon as well. So yep. and they're a great read. Up. Both of them are fantastic reads. Highly recommend it, them. Good, good. As I say, and, and always up for a always up for a debate on social media as long as you keep it. Remember that there are there are some bigger things than football, you know, in the world. <laughs> and, <laughs> so and, take... and, and the bigger things than football and selling shirts. Exactly. Right? exactly. Yes, definitely. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Especially if Pete Doherty is involved. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. that's that's uh, that, that's correct. All right. Thanks again, Giancarlo. No problem. That was a fantastic conversation with Giancarlo. So so many great stories and hilarious memories there. I love the one about his uncle in particular. Uh, thanks for listening to the the series. I hope you're enjoying it. Um, please don't forget to rate and review and share the podcast where you can. Every little bit helps. Uh, you can find plenty more. Calcio stories, nostalgia articles, including Giancarlo's work on gentlemanultra.com. Thanks for listening. Take care and enjoy your culture.